You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Amen. Well, uh, chances are, if you were a person alive in the 1800s or prior, uh, your life was not exactly a walk in the park. Uh, I read recently that uh, the life expectancy rate of folks like around the 16, 1700s was 40, y'all. Like, we got some old maids in here, if that's true. You know what I mean? Like, 40 years old, and, it's, I'm, and you're out. And if you get sick in the process, I mean, man, you had a good run, right? I mean, just sickness. They, they, did, they, they were doing things like bloodletting, right? Where you, you know, doctors would bleed a patient out. Turns out we found out you need your blood. Uh, blood's kind of a big deal. So, uh, but they were doing leeches. I mean, there's just stuff. It was weird back then. A lot of theories going around about how people got sick, how they got better. Most of these theories were wrong. One of the most interesting ones uh, that pertains to how people get infectious diseases and viruses, that type of thing, uh, was this theory called uh, miasma theory. Have you heard of this, miasma theory? Here's what it is. Um, Miasma theory goes like this. The reason you get infectious diseases and sicknesses is um, foul-smelling clouds of air that are floating around, and when you sniff it, you die. I know. Yes. They were not laughing so much back then at that. They thought it was a great idea. Stinky clouds. Is, is the theory. And this is how they understood how you and I got sick. Uh, it turns out it was uh, deficient. But uh, around that time, around the mid-1800s, um, scientists started to uh, stumble upon this newfangled bit of technology that uh, they started calling a microscope. Am I saying that right? A microscope. And these microscopes, uh, you could take things and put them under the microscope and and all of a sudden a surface that maybe looked totally ordinary, no activity happening on it, is now teeming with life. There's like, they were seeing uh, like millions of microscopic organisms under these things and they they got to thinking, hey, I wonder if like maybe these little creatures are the things that are making us sick and not stinky clouds. Uh, Maybe that's a, a better theory. They called these little things that they were seeing germs, and germ theory began to develop. They started testing this theory. Guys like John Snow. John Snow in the 1850s, so a, a, a cholera ep- epidemic breaks out in London in the 1850s. And John Snow goes to test this theory. Uh, and he notices that like all the people who are getting cholera, they're all in this one neighborhood, all in this one like complex, all around this one water well. And so he petitions the city. He says, hey, can, can you remove the water pump handle from the water well? I, I have a theory i got to test. They remove the, the handle. Nobody's drinking the water. And once you know it, no more cholera. That was it. Well, it turns out that there were germs, these things growing in the water. It wasn't stinky clouds. It was germs. That was the thing that was killing them. And, and germ theory prevailed. And it's because of things like germ theory that, that today we can now fight things like strep throat or the flu or, I don't know, COVID-19, right? It's a, the reason that we can do this. Why? Because we got rid of a faulty theory of what our problem is. That's how it started. We got rid of a faulty theory about what our real problem is. Now, why am I telling you that? Well, this is something that we Christians do all the time. If we're honest, we are trying to fight for spiritual health using a faulty theory, many of us. 
And what I mean is this, for, for some of you, you, you may, um, you may still be running in that same rut of sin, that one particular vice that, that has had you for years, and you're still there, and you're just right in that rut. You can't seem to get out of it, and it's been so long. You've thrown the kitchen sink at it. Nothing's changed, and you're just wondering, what's the deal? Is this like forever who I'm going to be, right? And it can be really fatiguing and exhausting. You wonder, what am I doing wrong? What am I misunderstanding? Or maybe that's not you. Maybe for you, you've, you've had some victory in one lane. You've, you've overcome this sin, this temptation. As soon as you beat that down, though, one, two, three, new things pop up. It's like you're playing whack-a-mole with your sin. It's like, I can't get these all down. Why do they keep popping up? What, what might I be misunderstanding about my situation? And that's what I want to talk about this morning, because I want us to consider the possibility that if that's us, that we might actually be operating with a faulty theory of our problem. And because we have misinformation, because we have a faulty theory, we, we can't fight for spiritual health in the way we need to. And today, we're going to be brushing shoulders with a word, just a word in our text in Jonah that's going to, I think, help make sense for us uh, of what our real problem in this life is. It's a hugely important concept in your Bible. It's on almost every page of your Old Testament in particular. And though it's everywhere, in 2021, it, just like a germ, it's almost impossible to see it with the naked eye. We just don't interact with it in our day to day. And if we can't interact with it, we can't actually get healthy. And the word I'm talking about today is the word idolatry. Idolatry. Not a very popular word. Not a word that you're probably throwing around uh, a lot. Uh, but we see it show up right here in the passage in Jonah when he's praying his prayer inside the fish. So let me give you the, the context. Jonah uh, disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish. He's on the ship. The, the, the uh, sailors throw him overboard per his request. He's in the water. Fish swallows him uh, through God's mercy, really. And now he's in the fish and he's praying. And that's all of Jonah 2 is just this prayer. And right in the middle of it, he says this in verses 7 and 8. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayers came to you into your holy temple. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now we're going to be doing something a little different today. Um, we have already, if you've been with us, you know that two weeks ago we, we spent our time in Jonah 2. We worked through the passage. We looked at the implications. We were in the text. Uh, so we're not going to come back to Jonah 2 in that way today. Today, if you'll permit me, I just want to zoom in on this one moment, this one word, and, and bring it out for us. And, and I want to work uh, with just this idea, this concept of idolatry, to help us get a better sense of what it is. It is so prevalent. Jonah touches on it here, but uh, really to, to make sense of so much of Scripture, so much of your life, we need to get a handle on this. So we're going to grab this word, we're going we're gonna to bring it out, and then we're going uh, to talk about it for the next 30, 40 minutes together what it means and what it means for you. That's really the, the movements here. I want to define it. What are we talking about when we say the word idolatry? And then I just want to tease out its implications. If that's what we mean, then what does it mean for us? What are the implications that come from it? So that's where we're going. Can we, is that okay? Can we do that? Okay. Even if you said no, it's in the notes. So here we go. Okay, so let's talk about it. Um, idolatry. 
Chances are, uh, when I say that word, idolatry, your mind probably goes to two places. It goes someplace ancient, way back in time, or it goes someplace foreign, right? Uh, ancient. You probably, when you hear that word, your mind goes to some, some Bible moment way back 3,000 years ago. Maybe you see uh, Moses and Aaron. And uh, it's, it's at uh, Mount Sinai, and Moses comes down, and there they are with the two golden calves. These are your gods that brought you out of Egypt, right? It's that moment. Or maybe you, uh, your mind goes to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3, a big statue, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, bow down and worship this thing. You see lots of gold, statues, idols, right? So you, so you go ancient with it. Or I say idolatry, and you go foreign, right? Uh, we think... Um, East Asia, we think that a lot of the religions that are prevalent there, we think uh, Hinduism. I was just uh, a month ago in India, and every shop you go into, there's little trinkets, little pewter, you know, uh, Vishnus and, and, and Shivas and, uh, there for you to buy, take home, uh, and pray to, worship, right? And, and, and we think uh, kind of other, uh, over there, the them sort of thing. That's, that's what we think of with idolatry, Buddhism, those types of things. And uh, when we think about it this way, we can tend to excuse ourselves from the conversation, right? If it's a, if it's a way back then thing, and it's a them thing, uh, then it's not a me thing. But what I want to challenge you on today is this is very, very much a me thing, uh, if we can understand it rightly. So how does this have to do with me, right? And that's a fair question, because probably... Uh, very few of you in this room have, have whittled out a, a goat out of a bar of soap and bowed to it in your master bath. You probably don't do that very often. And if you do, man, stop. It's a terrible idea. Don't do it. But my guess is you're probably not doing that. Uh, uh, my guess is you probably don't interact with that uh, at all. So how does this connect with me? And the answer is, well, it depends on how you define the word idolatry. What do we mean really when we're talking about Idolatry. Well, I want to take uh, just a moment from the Old Testament to see if we can build some type of definition that can help us out on it. Let's go to uh, Exodus 20. Probably the most iconic moment when we think about idolatry. It's, it's the Ten Commandments Moses is giving to the people of Israel. I just want to read uh, uh, the first handful of verses from Exodus 20, uh, starting in verse 2. It says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So this is a, hopefully a very familiar passage for us. This is the Ten Commandments, and this is the first two of the Ten Commandments. I just want you to notice a couple things, and then we're going to uh, work on our definition. I want you to notice that there is a reason why Commandments 1 and 2 are where they are. They're at the front, and they're together. It's saying something about their priority, and it, I think it's saying something about their linkedness. There's a lot of overlap with these concepts. You get, you get these two ideas coming out of them, other gods and idol, or carved image. Other gods and idol. And, and essentially, in many ways, we're saying the same thing when we're saying those two phrases. Because both of those ideas, other gods and idols, are ways to talk about things that, according to this passage, things that compete for the place of God in your life. 
That's what God's warning them against. And, and, and it shows us uh, how to spot these guys right here in the text because it, it tells us what we're going to be tempted to do with them. Look at verse 5. It tells us that we're, we're going to be tempted to bow down and serve these things. So, so uh, and, and that, that's, a, that's a picture of worship, right? Um, and so really what, what's happening is anything that you'd be uh, inclined to ascribe worth to, supreme worth to, uh, it becomes a, a functional God uh, for you. That's actually where the word worship comes from, by the way. Worthship, we ascribe worth to something. Uh, ultimate worth, those are the things that we worship. And, uh, and they warn us here, we're not to do that. We're not to uh, ascribe ultimate worth to anything other than God. Uh, now, how is it that we'd be tempted to ascribe that kind of worth to something? That's, that's probably the, the last question before we answer our, uh, or give our definition. And I think the answer is this. When we become convinced that that thing, whatever it is, has the ability to give us what only God can, our meaning, our sense of purpose, value, position, satisfaction, comfort, all of those things, it, whatever is external to God that you look to to give you those things, that is functionally your idol or your other God. So our, our working definition this morning is going to be this. What is idolatry? Idolatry is looking to any created thing to give you what only God can. That's what, that's what it is looking to any created thing to give you what only God can. Now, you might not have thought about it in those terms before. But this is how the Bible understands it. And, and if this is true, if this is how the Bible actually understands this, this is actually huge news. Do you know what this means? This means you don't need to own an idol to have an idol. But that, that's, a, that's a very big deal. Do you, do you know what this means? This... It means this, do you know the only thing that you actually need uh, to be an idolater according to scripture, if, if how we're understanding this is right, the only thing you need to be an idol worshiper according to God is this, you just need to find one thing you love more than him. That's it. Find one thing more important to you than him. One thing that floods your life with meaning more than him. That satisfies your heart more than him. That excites your affections more than him. That eases your mind in moments of anxiety more than him. That you trust more than him. One thing, just one thing. If that's true, do you know what that makes everyone in this room and everyone watching at home and everyone preaching right now? To one degree or another, that makes us all idolaters, doesn't it? So this, this is a, actually a very serious and very relevant subject to us. And I know that you want to take God's word seriously. And we want to be, if you're in this room, you're watching at home, you're saying, I, I, I'm here because I want to worship God truly and God only. And so if that's how the Bible tells us to think about idolatry, I, I now just want to spend the rest of the sermon doing this one thing. I want to tease out some implications. What does it mean for us? If that's true, what does it mean for us? Let me give you three implications to consider. 
If this is what idolatry is, what follows? Number one, behavior is not our biggest problem. If this is true, then behavior is not actually our biggest problem. I've got a 40-foot tall oak tree in my backyard. Say I wanted to take that thing down. What might I do to get it down? Maybe I get out there with a six-foot ladder, some gloves, and I just show that thing who's boss, man. I just start plucking those leaves, y'all. Just, oh, you want some of this? Uh, leaf, leaf. Maybe that's what I do. Show it who's boss, shake some branches. Is that what? No, that's not what I do. What do I do? I hire a guy who owns a chainsaw as big as his body, and I just tell him, just go to the root. Just cut the whole thing down as low as you can go to the root. Why? Because if you want to take down a tree, you don't go high, you go low, right? You don't go high, you go low. But, but for many of us, we always, with our sin, we start high. We start way up here. We're leaf people. I got to get these leaves out of my life. So I, I got a drinking problem. Pluck. I got a pornography problem. Pluck. Got an anger problem. I got a gossipy mouth. Pluck, pluck. We're pulling off leaves like this, thinking that we're killing this tree called sin in our life. But do you know what a bare tree is? It's still a tree, right? It's just, they're just going to grow back because you got 30 feet of trunk and root system underneath you that's really doing the damage. The leaves are just the byproduct of what's happening down here. And if you want to get rid of a tree, you don't go high, you go low. I lost 80 pounds in college. Did you know that? 80 pounds. And do you know what met me on the other side of that weight loss? Vanity. Just hoping everyone would think I looked good. So let me ask you this. If a person who struggles with gluttony loses 80 pounds just to stare at a mirror all day, have they beaten their sin? Or have they just swapped idols? This is why this matters. Behavior isn't our biggest problem. Our heart is our biggest problem. Do you see that? That's why... The hardest words Jesus has for any group of people in the Bible is not the prostitutes and tax collectors. The hardest words he has for anybody in the Bible is who? It's the Pharisees. It's the religious elite. It's the moral, law-keeping, law-abiding people, the nice guys. Those are the guys that he rails at. He calls them whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, dead bones on the inside. That's, that's how he talks about the Pharisees, the nice people. Isn't that fascinating? I just, I, you need to hear this. God is unimpressed with nice people, bare leave people. He's unimpressed with that. He wants new people. We've talked about this before, but nice and new are just wildly different concepts in the Bible. You can have a totally bare tree, but it's still a sequoia, just right there. And some of you today, you may be that person, you may be that incredibly nice, sweet as pie, just moral, law-abiding person. But I need you to hear there's, though there is something good about that, I don't think you should be an axe murderer. I'm not saying just go crazy. That's not, the, that's not what I'm saying. There is something good about 
fleeing your behavioral sins. Yes to that. Hear that. But there is deeper work for you to do today. You hear me? There's deeper work. Maybe today God's inviting you to do that humbling work of exploring whether you're just a good leaf plucker or whether you actually love God above all things. Is there a sequoia still in your yard, even though it's bare? Behavior is not our biggest problem. That's the first thing I want you to see. Second thing, good things are the bigger threat. Now, what do I mean by that? Good things are the bigger threat. There's this quote from uh, this movie, The Usual Suspects, that came out in the 90s where the guy says, uh, you probably heard this quote, the, the smartest thing the devil ever did was to convince everyone he didn't exist. And I think there's so much truth to that. When we talk about, just in our, even our just Christian culture, we talk about things like sin and uh, idolatry and evil. We, we tend to only think about the caricature versions of them, right? When, we say, when I say sin, you think horns and red and bad and illegal and those types of things. And I just, if that's your instinct when you hear words like sin and idolatry, you're going to live a very crippled life as a Christian because sin is so much more subtle and invisible, like a germ to us. That's not what real life is like. Sin doesn't walk around with horns attached to it all the time. It's more subtle than that. Sometimes the best things in our life pose the greatest threat to us. This is, this is, so, oh man, if you can get this today, this will change you. It will change how you walk with God. The biggest threat to God being worshiped in your life is probably not crack cocaine. It might be, but it probably isn't. The biggest threat to God being worshiped in your life is probably your kids or your spouse or your job, or your ministry, or your giftings, or you. If idolatry is looking to God's gifts to satisfy us and to give us meaning, then it stands to reason that the better the gift is, the more tempting it will be to look to that thing for satisfaction and meaning. Does that make sense? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you and I have to walk around paranoid all the time about every relationship we have and every good thing in our life. Like, I can't talk to you. I can't look you in the eyes because you're an idol, right? That's not, that's not it. Um, I'm just saying, I'm just saying it's easier to make those things into God's than bad things into God's. That's what I'm saying. It is easier to turn those things into God's. And if it's the case that, that, that it's so hard to see when a good thing becomes a God thing, if that's true, then what I wanna do for the next few minutes is I just wanna submit a handful of questions to you to ask yourself as you're considering if there may be good things in my life that I have sat in the seat that only God is allowed to sit in. We need good questions, good probing questions to explore our heart to see where we are 
what we really worship. And so let me just submit a handful of them to you and, uh, and see if the Lord highlights something. And I want you to pay attention to, to what jumps out in your heart and mind when I, when I do this. Um, here, here's a handful. What is something in your life that if you lost it would make life hardly worth living? What's that thing? I'll tell you what it was for me for, for years, most, most of my 20s. Uh, it was my music career. Just the thought that I would be off the road, not, not doing the super cool tour around the world life, like that, if I was honest, was, was something in my life that was so important to me that I couldn't imagine life being lived without that being part of my life. And now I'm a pastor. I lived, I survived, turns out. What is it for you? I don't know. What is something I don't have that I'd be willing to do just about anything to get? What came to your mind just then? How about this one? Where does your mind wander to in downtime? When you got nothing else to think about, what do you think about? What are you thinking about? Where does it go to? I'm not saying that the answer to that question is is a, a false God in your life. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying these are the questions we have to ask ourselves to get to the bottom of what's happening in our heart because sometimes we can't see it. Where does your mind wander to? What do you think about? What, uh, what do you spend the most money on without a second thought? You got to consult nobody for this, right? I'm not, I, I don't need to pray. I just, yes, bought, done. What is that thing? How about this one? What keeps you up at night? Like in those anxious, quiet moments when you're all by yourself and you're tossing, what is, what is the thing that's keeping you up? What is causing that anxiety in you? What is that, that primary fear that shows up in your heart? It would be so great for you this week even to just sit with those questions. And just ask the Lord, Lord, what, what is the answer to these questions? And could it be that the answer to them is something that I have made overly important in my heart's affection? My guess is the answer to most of those questions are really great things. They are your children. They are your, your ministry, your job, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. They, they may be any and all those things. And I'm just inviting us to be vigilant. As Christians, that, that's what we're showing up to do. We, we need to be watchful because our heart is deceitfully wicked. It's tricky. And Satan loves to give us even really great things, turning them to, to become temptations to stray from God in our life. And I don't want that for us. I don't want it. I want us to fight well. I want us to fight well. Which brings us to our last point. How do we fight well? How do we fight this thing? What is the best way? I've, 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 I've talked the tree analogy and going to the root, but what, how do you get to the root? And how, you know, what is the, how do you fight this thing well? If idolatry is really a, a heart that finds more pleasure in God's gifts than God himself, then how do we fight? The answer is this, and this is our last point. We fight pleasure with better pleasure. That's how we fight. I don't know if you've ever spent time um, just thinking about the, the Old Testament. I don't know if you've, uh, who of us have kind of read through the whole thing, if you've done it once or multiple times, uh, but it is, if you haven't read it, a mess. 
just like a moral train wreck on virtually every page. You get two good chapters out of that thing, and then it tanks. Um, and for the rest of your Old Testament, it's just, I mean, it's just one terrible decision from people after another. I mean, it's murder and incest and strife and drunkenness and just the worst things you can think of. And, and you keep turning the pages and think, surely there's gonna, we're going to turn a corner. And it just get, they, they keep turning a corner into a brick wall and exploding. And it's the worst. And then you get to, uh, like, say, the kings. And you think, okay, finally, some structure, right? Like, we got a leader. Maybe they'll pull themselves together. False, right? It's even worse. These guys are doing s- such terrible acts. And I don't just mean, like, I'm coveting my neighbor's goat kind of acts. Like, it's like, it's, that's bad, but it's not. It's... It's like parents are taking their children and they're putting them on a fiery altar, burning them alive to the demon god Molech and calling themselves followers of God. That's the kind of stuff that's happening. I mean, just the worst things you can imagine. And so I'm reading this for the, uh, the first time years ago and, and going through, and I finally get to the prophets, and I'm relieved because the prophets, they're about to slap some people around. I like the prophets, right? They're going to they're gonna say, they're gonna say the thing that needs to be said. And I'm ready for like this laundry list to be detailed out. Like, wh- like let's, let's let them have it, right? I mean, there's so, you, it would take weeks to write down all the things, the terrible things that these people did. And when I got to Jeremiah, I was blown away by how he framed the whole thing. How Jeremiah understands the sins of the people of Israel shocked me. It changed me. It was Jeremiah 2.13. You're probably familiar with the verse. He's, He's about to talk about Israel's issues, what they are at their core. And instead of giving a laundry list of things, he just says this. Let me just read this to you. Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. That's not right. I mean, they've, I mean, you got a thousand pages of evils. What are you talking about? No, no, two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I find this fascinating that this prophet, when thinking about all the vices, all the crimes, all the sins of the people of God over all these hundreds and thousands of years, when, he, when he's boiling it all down, he boils it all down to terms of eating and drinking. He says, do you want to know what your real problem is? Here's your problem. I'm like water to you, and you refuse to drink. You want to know what's at the heart of your issue? I'm like a fountain to you. But instead of coming to me and just drinking deep and having your soul satisfied, instead of doing that, you dig a hole of mud and slurp it. That's what your sin is. And if you want a helpful way to think about sin in the Bible or what I mean when I'm talking about idolatry, what the Bible is getting at, this is a so helpful way to think about it. We're talking about you finding someone other than him to drink deeply from. 
Something other than him that quenches that soul's thirst for you. That's how the Bible talks about it. And so is it any wonder when Jesus shows up on the scene that the way he frames himself for the people who are coming to him is also in terms of eating and drinking? I mean, think about it. What does he call himself? He calls himself things like living water and new wine. And my personal favorite, John 6, 35, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. I mean, what language is this? You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, I know what your biggest problem is. And it's not one of leaves, it's a trunk. It's not, it's not one of just sins out there, it's an appetite problem. And I wanna let you know that the, the most helpful way to think about me, who I am for you, it's this, I'm like a good meal for you. I'm like bread for you. And if you wanna know how to be free, find victory, walk in that kind of way, it's not just about plucking the leaves, it's about coming and feasting. I'm like fresh water for you. And I don't know when you hear that, how that strikes you. If you've thought about Christianity in terms of a leaf sort of situation, or if you understand that, no, there's something bigger going on than just me uh, having my behaviors modified. But can I tell you, it's about drinking and eating. It's about coming to the person of Jesus and finding him to be ultimately, truly, fully satisfying. And feasting in such a way that when I'm done with the feast, I just, I, I'm just not hungry for that thing anymore. For that person, for that job. I don't need it in the same way because I've had a good meal. You know what I mean? Like when you have like a feast, when you sit down and you eat and it's Thanksgiving, you know what you're not doing five minutes later? You're not going to the pantry. You're not stuffing your face with junk because you've feasted. You've feasted. That's the Christian life. That's how we war against the idolatry. All of these things out there scream, I can satisfy you more. I can sustain you more. I can comfort you more. The way we fight that, that lie is by feeding ourselves with the truth. The truth is there's only one that can do that. His name's Jesus. And he came and he lived for me and he died for me and he rose for me and he's coming for me. And I can actually interact with him in a way that makes my heart full, like, like it would my stomach. It, it fills me up. So no, I'm not gonna run to that, that cistern anymore. I'm not drinking from that anymore. I'm coming to him. He's better. Some of you, the, the best thing you can do today is just in faith go, you know what? I've tried all the techniques, but I haven't tried just coming and drinking, sitting with him, talking with him, lingering with him, giving myself time to just go, God, will you satisfy me? Something, you, you don't have to have all the right words to pray and say. Just take time to sit with him and just say this, Lord, Jimmy said today, you can satisfy me. I believe you. Can you prove it? Can you do it? What a great application for this morning. He's come to be bread. 
He's come to be water. Eat and drink and be satisfied. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I know for me, for many years, I had lived up in the branches, sitting with the leaves, thinking that this was my main issue, when all the while, my heart had different masters, different loves, and that was the real problem, and I missed it. And I, I bet that there are also folks here that are the same as me in that. And so, God, I pray this morning, this would be a freedom morning. where we could grab the, the axe, the, the chainsaw of truth and just go to the root of our sin struggles in this life. We could do some real damage to it because we've realized that you're, you're not just coming to make me nicer, you're coming to make me new. You've come to satisfy me, to be bread for me. God, will you make John 6.35 be true for the lives of the people in this room? Satisfy satisfy us.